WTOP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and we welcome your questions. If there's a particular issue that you've been studying and you'd like biblical help or counsel on, if we can be of aid to you, feel free to call us locally, 525-1859, toll free at 877 877- WAGP 980, or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL, which stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can remain anonymous and simply dictate your question, or if you're more comfortable, you can go on the air live. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today for the Bible line. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've had a number of questions that have come in over the last couple of weeks, so let's get to uh, one that came in uh, last week, a listener would like to know, uh, when did all of the races start, and uh, was if Adam was made from dirt, what race was he? Well, it's a good question. Uh, you know, the, the only real explanation for the races comes from the Bible. Uh, the evolutionists, his uh, explanation for the races are various genetic mutations, But God doesn't make junk, as the sign used to say some years ago. There are no genetic mutations in terms of that's why some people are different races. The explanation really comes from Genesis 10 and 11. And so Moses, in a typical Hebrew style, he'll state a number of uh, facts, and then he'll go back and explain the facts. And you see that all the way through the first five books of the Bible. And so in Genesis 10, you see all these different peoples uh, that are in existence. And then in Genesis 11, he explains how these different peoples came into existence. And of course, uh, the explanation is the Tower of Babel. The whole earth uh, used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible. So God said, let us come down and confuse. The Hebrew word for confuse is Babel. And so we speak of the Tower of Babel. Let us confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called 
Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. Uh, So a very clear explanation because of man's pride and arrogance, uh, God divided them up via language. So what in practice happened? Well, if I spoke French, I'm looking at a guy who speaks Chinese or another person who speaks another language, we can't understand one another. So you began to gather around those of the same language group. And within language group, over the generations that would follow, there would be marriage and intermarriage. And with that would develop certain unique, special, distinct racial features. And so, for instance, when I go to Israel and I look at a Jewish person, uh, there's, you know, certain characteristics that a Jewish person have. When I go to Ukraine and I see a Ukrainian person, there is certain distinctive features that Ukrainians have. When I uh, go to China, there are certain distinctive features Chinese people have. And it's really interesting. Sometimes I'm uh, even in the, uh, in the States here, and I'll see a person from another country, and I can almost call the country that they're from just from the distinct racial features that develop through their language group. So there is an explanation. And in fact, science agrees with that explanation that when people marry within the same genetic pool, which in this case would have been dictated by language, that's the answer God gives us, then science itself affirms that certain distinctive racial features would develop. So that's where the races came. So what race was Adam? Well, God doesn't say. He was, he was, he was the race. He was the human race. But from Adam, of course, we all came. And so while we may look a little bit different, we're all interrelated. We all go back to the same original parents. And Adam was every man, woman, boy, or girl who would ever live. And and that's why when Romans 5 said, Adam sinned, all sinned. Uh, we speak of original sin. We are guilty for Adam's sin because in and with Adam, we sinned. Uh, we don't think much about the solidarity of the race in the Western world, but in Eastern uh, Europe and the Middle East, they have a concept of solidarity that's not as prevalent in our Western culture. Even in the uh, 1980s, you had guys like Lech Wałęsa in Poland, and he had a movement called the Solidarity Movement. What was he saying? He's saying, we as the Polish people are, are one people, and we're joining together against uh, communism. Uh, the concept of solidarity is one that you find in the Scripture, Uh, So that, for instance, in Hebrews 7, when Abraham tithed, Levi also tithed. Well, how could that be since Levi came several hundred years after Abraham? Because Levi, the Bible says, was in the loins of Abraham. So in the loins of Adam was every man, woman, boy, or girl who would ever live. So sometimes people say, why am I blamed for, for Adam's sin? Well, you got sin of your own that you can contend with, but does an apple tree bear apples? Is an apple tree an apple tree because it bears apples, or is it, does it bear apples because it's an apple tree? Well, the latter. Its nature is sinful, and by nature we're sinful, and so we commit acts of sin, but our sinful nature goes back to the decision that we made in Adam, the progenitor of the whole human race. Great question. 525-1859 is the number locally, or toll-free at 877-WAGP980, or is this next person did, you can email us directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Indeed, this person would like to know whether we should expect God to move in miraculous ways today like he did in the Old Testament 
when we, when we need help or deliverance? And if so, how does one keep from getting discouraged if they don't experience God moving in those ways? Well, you know, sometimes people always want to see the miraculous and the spectacular. And if you're a preacher and you sell that, it will certainly fill seats. But if you just stop and pause for a moment, it becomes plain that miracles were never normative throughout biblical history. It was just that the great movements of biblical history that God brought clusters of miracles through individuals. Uh, So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, the friend of God, the father of the faithful, he never did a miracle in his life. Uh, Joseph, the mighty man of God that he was, never did a miracle. In fact, it's not until the time of Moses that we see miracles taking place. And we see these miracles happening because uh, God is doing something new. And he's bringing new revelation and for the first time written revelation through his servant Moses. And so there's a cluster of time in which miracles were done through Moses. And then through the one that he passes his authority to, to Joshua. And Joshua finishes that spur of miracles as they move into the promised land and they settle as God intended for them to do. Then hundreds of years go by and no one does a miracle until Elijah comes on the scene. And Elijah, because uh, God is doing something new in Israel as he calls the people to repentance, does miracles through his prophet. And when Elijah is carried up, he passes the baton onto Elisha. But then when Elisha leaves the scene, miracles stop through individuals. And hundreds of years go by where God does no miracles uh, through an individual. Now, God still does miracles, and God to this day can still do miracles. God did even the spectacular through, uh, not through, but to Daniel. Though Daniel himself never did a miracle, he experienced the miracle in the, in the lion's den. Uh, His three friends experienced a miracle there in the fiery furnace, but they didn't do a miracle. So after Elijah and Elisha, no one does a miracle into the time of Christ and the the apostles. And again, there's a cluster of miracles. So hundreds of years go by. None of the minor or major prophets ever did a miracle. Now they witnessed some miracles, but they didn't do a miracle. And so God, uh, only at the great ganglions of spiritual history does miracles. And the next time frame in which he will do miracles again that the Bible prophesies is during the seven-year tribulation period. There will be two people who will come mimicking the ministries, interestingly, of both Moses and Elijah. In fact, most scholars think that this will be Moses and Elijah come back during the tribulation period. We know Elijah is going to come again before the great and terrible day of the Lord because the Bible predicts it and prophesies it. And John, I suppose, since he came in the spirit of Elijah, Jesus said, could have been an Elijah to them. But he didn't deny the fact that Elijah is yet to come. And so Jesus and the Gospels concurred with what Malachi, the prophet, speaks of in Malachi chapter 4. I preached a sermon once called the second coming of Elijah. And so there's going to be a cluster of miracles, and it may be that one of these two witnesses is indeed Elijah and Moses, or maybe there's two separate men, and Elijah will be on the scene doing some of his own. I don't know, but uh, we do know that there'll be a cluster of miracles again. So to think that miracles have been normative throughout the history of the church And throughout biblical history is just to have a distorted view 
of how God does miracles. Now, that's not to say that God can't do the miraculous. But these men who go around the country saying that they're going to raise the dead and heal you and do all these things. Listen, uh, Paul, when he gave the signs of an apostle in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, when he was contending with those who said he was a false apostle. I mean, he wasn't one of the original. How can he claim to be an apostle? And Paul defends his apostleship uh, in both First and Second Corinthians against those false teachers who had come into the church. In fact, he accused them of being false apostles. He said, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And he said, we shouldn't be surprised because that's what the devil does. He comes as an angel of light. And then in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians twelve twelve, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So if everyone could do the signs, wonders, and miracles that Paul did, then his argument is totally meaningless. But not everyone could. And, and uh, we were discussing this a little bit on Sunday as we opened the book of Romans. And Paul calls himself an apostle called by God. And he took upon himself a title that God had originally given just to the 12, but he also will give to the apostle Paul. And to be an apostle, among other things, you had to have seen the risen Christ, had an audible conversation with him, and then if in, be called by him, and if indeed you had seen him, heard him, spoke with him, and been called by him, then there would be some evidence to back it up. So God would authenticate the messenger in the message with miracles, signs, wonders, and miracles. And so there's coming a time in the future when God is going to do the same through his two prophets, uh, two men who will be witnesses whom the world will disdain and hate and kill. And then they will literally uh, rise up from the dead there in the city of Jerusalem. The great revelation that Jesus gave to John records that. So don't be uh, discouraged if either a miracle is not necessarily done to you, uh, even when Jesus was here, he didn't heal everybody. He didn't do miracles in everyone. He just did it to a select group of people. And so don't be discouraged if you don't have a miracle done necessarily in your lifetime. But neither should you uh, not look to God for to do great things in your life. You should pray. Look, if you're sick and and they say, um, there's no hope for you, pray for a miracle. Pray for healing anyway through God, even if they say there is a cure. Don't, don't do what King Asa did and simply trust the physicians. Do what Hezekiah did and seek the Lord God, and then God used the medical means as prescribed through Isaiah the prophet for his healing. Uh, don't, don't trust in medicine alone. It can be a tool that God uses, but look beyond medicine. Look to the Lord God who's the healer. And sometimes you can look to God when there is no hope. I, I had a friend, Sweet Anderson. We were on staff together with Campus Crusade for Christ. They gave him one month to live, one month to live with his pancreatic cancer. I think that was 20 years ago. Uh, God did a miracle. No human explanation for it. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a live caller as well. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Uh, good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for calling today. Uh Recently, you know, over the past year or so, I guess, uh, we I've seen uh, gospel ministries changing their names. Uh, for example, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ changing their name to Crew, 
And more recently, I heard where the Southern Baptists are not necessarily mandating, but they're giving their members the option to change their name to, I think it's something like the followers or the disciples or whatever, because the name Southern Baptist has has a, a bad connotation to it or rub people the wrong way. And, and uh, even more recently, I saw where Wycliffe Bible Translators has been criticized, among others, for, I think, in some Muslim countries, changing the, their um, Muslim translation of the Bible to not say God, but to say Allah and remove the name of Jesus so that they don't offend them. I'm wondering if you've heard of these, and uh, if so, what do you think of those? And um, also, do you think acts like this are meaning that we might be closer to the rapture? Well, it's a, it's a great question, so let me respond to each one. Let me go first to, to Campus Crusade for Christ and their new name, Crew. Um, let me first say that they've been using the name Crew in campus ministry for well over a decade. Uh, so it's really not anything new. A lot of individual campuses, when they promoted uh, their work and ministry on the campus, not because they were ashamed of Christ, but one for abbreviation purposes, uh, they said crew. Uh, but two, what's happened in the United States is we have a, a, a wonderful phenomena and opportunity, and that is the international community is moving here. And you see that no more clearly expressed than on the college campuses in America. Uh, On every college campus, uh, there are typically international students. For many places, they can come for free, uh, but they're certainly sought after, and many want to come to this country to study. Uh, When my my son was at Harvard Business School, I went into a class with him, and I said, who's who's from America here? And he said about 70% of the people there in his particular section, they were from other countries of the world, and they, they, they want to come in uh, study. So um, there's an opportunity for that. And in Muslim countries of the world, the word crusade carries a lot of really negative connotations. And Muslims often, because this is what they're taught and what's propagated, and it becomes a, a basis for holy war, and it becomes a basis for the uh, particular uh, verse in the Quran that espouses to kill the Trinitarians, is they look back at things like the Crusades. And there's a lot that's been done in the name of Christianity that has not been done by true Christians. And the Crusades, I think, is a classic example where they would come in and they would literally slaughter the Muslims uh, in the name of Christianity. And they did some brutal things. It was um, largely under the movement of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, That's unfortunate. Uh, but that's what happened. So, for instance, uh, Dr. Billy Graham's son, when he basically took the reins of the Billy Graham evangelistic organization, he no longer called them crusades. He's given them different names uh, to uh, attract people. He called them festivals, which is the primary name that he's used. Uh, and in no way is Franklin Graham compromised the message. And I don't think Campus Crusade has compromised their, themselves in calling themselves crew instead of uh, Campus Crusade for Christ because they're trying to be all things to all men to win 
potentially more people. Now, changing the name doesn't necessarily do that, but it certainly might give you a platform in some uh, campuses. So, like, I was on one campus where I ministered for five years, and 25% of the student body is international students. And so, again, you, you want to relate, but you don't compromise the message in your relating. Now, Southern Baptist more recently uh, sought the, um, you know, a possible resolution to change their name from Southern Baptist for a couple of reasons. One, the negative connotation with the term in their history, as most of you know who have studied Southern Baptists, they um, started over the issue of slavery. There's a man in Alabama who wanted to be sent overseas as a missionary. Uh, and at the time, Baptists in the United States, Northern and Southern, were combined together as one group. And he went to the mission board in New York City. And he was refused because he had some family members who owned slaves. And this uh, riled up a lot of the Baptists in the South. And they basically said, you'll take our money, but you won't take our sons. And so they split away and they started the Southern Baptist Convention. And they did so, among other things, because they felt like they could biblically justify slavery. They could not. They, as recently as the 1990s, under Richard Land, said, we, we want to formally apologize for what we did. And they did. It was the first time. In fact, it was shortly after Richard Land did that, that an uh, African-American uh, Baptist church in uh, New Orleans uh, became part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Actually, what they did is they took over a church that was dying, a white church, and it, gr- it changed into an African-American congregation, but they kept it Southern Baptist because of what Southern Baptist did. And that, that actual um, church has grown to over 3,000 members, and that pastor will probably be elected uh, as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention this summer. That's what I suspect. And he will be the first African-American to serve as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So because of the negative connotation between their history in two, because they recognize, well, our ministry is not just Southern. Uh, There's a Southern Baptist church in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, my hometown. Uh, My son's father-in-law pastored a Southern Baptist church in Illinois. Uh, so it's not purely a Southern movement in their planning churches. So they considered the name change. They just came out a couple of days ago. I just happened to catch the news feed. Maybe it was yesterday I read the news feed that um, they're not going to do it because the expense was so much. But is the concept necessarily bad or negative? No. Uh, in fact, they already did it in some of their uh, ministries, like it used to be called Baptist bookstores. Why did they change it to Lifeway Books? Well, for the simple reason that uh, they realized there was a lot of people who would not walk in off the street into a Baptist bookstore because they had maybe preconceptions over what a Baptist was. Uh, and they wanted to broaden their ministry in the Christian community and beyond the Christian community to the non-Christian community. And when they changed their names and their marketing to Lifeway Book, they actually brought in their audience and began to reach more people through book and ministry and through written literature, which is a which is a good thing. Now, I've not heard about Wycliffe Bible translators doing that, and I know there's a lot of rumors that are propagated on the internet that are not necessarily true. That would very much surprise me if they did that. But if an organization in a translation either left out the name of Jesus 
or let's say they even included the name Jesus, but they change uh, Theos or Yahweh or Adonai or other words for Lord and God in the Bible to Allah, that would be terrible because Allah is a false God. Uh, it's a, he's a demonic God of sorts. Uh, that could cause my head to be cut off by some hateful Muslim, but that's true. He's not the one true God. And so to try to be culturally relevant by taking, that would be like taking the name Beelzebul and giving Christ that name because uh, there's some culture where they, they want to call their God Beelzebul. That would be an awful thing to do. Uh, because Beelzebul is a, a, a satanic god of sorts. There's obviously only one true God, but there are demons that work and function, as Paul teaches to the Corinthian church, behind so-called false gods. And uh, that's what we have in Islam. Now, that may sound radical and unloving, but it's true. It is absolutely true. Uh, he came 600 years after Christ, the prophet Muhammad, and he was not a prophet of God, as he claimed. Uh, he was a false prophet, had all the marks of a false prophet on him. So when Franklin Graham, you know, came out and spoke out against the Muslims, you know, he took a lot of heat for it, but he did the right thing without stutter or stammer because he knew what the Bible said. And we're afraid to say what's right anymore. And that's really unfortunate. So, again, I don't know what Wycliffe did there. I'll, I'll, I'll check that for myself. But if they did it, it would obviously be wrong. If they did it, I would be shocked and surprised. Um, so, anyway. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next listener called this win, and they dictated it. They want to know, since God created all things... Did he create evil? No, God is not the source of evil. All things that God created were indeed good. But evil is the opposite of good, and God did create free will. Free will presupposes choice. And so even in the angelic realm, they had a choice. And so Lucifer uh, rebelled against God and took with him a third of the angels with him. And evil entered into the universe. Why? Because God didn't create angels like robots. He created them as persons. Angels have the characteristics of personality, not of humanhood, but of personality in that they have emotion, intellect, and will. And in my series on angelology, angels that serve us, um, I walk through that if someone's interested in studying that further. But, you know, part of uh, being created uh, as God made both man and angels, is the aspect of free will. And so evil enters into the world not because God creates it, because God doesn't create anything evil. God only creates that which is good. And even in uh, Genesis, when God uh, gives an assessment of man and says, you know, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Um, God, uh, in Genesis three twenty two, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil. And now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. God sent him out from the garden. God didn't want man to know evil through experience. God wanted man to know evil by revelation. 
but man languished uh, in his choice and yielded to Satan's tempt, uh, temptation and learned it by experience, which is unfortunate. But God is not the author of evil or sin in any way, shape, or form. And even the New Testament reaffirms that in uh, James chapter 1, uh, when James the Apostle, we, we spoke this morning about apostles. James, the half-brother of Christ, is also an apostle. Say, how do you know that? Because he's called that in Galatians. And when Galatians is written, uh, James, uh, who's called an apostle with Peter and the apostle Paul, uh, is uh, the, the, the original James is already dead and has had his, his head cut off. Uh, let no one, when he is tempted, say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So God in no way, shape, or form is the author of, of, of evil or sin. And so let's just make that clear. Let's go to the next question. It's a good one. Okay, this one was dictated a minute ago. A caller would like your opinion on postmodernism and how it plays into today's adolescent culture. Would this be best explained by 2 Timothy 4.3? Well, um, certainly we live in a day where there are no absolutes. More and more people have developed a um, theology. The word theology just means knowledge of God. And every man has a theology. It might be a biblical theology. It might be a man-made theology. But every man has a theology. It's either accurate or inaccurate. It's either true or it's false. And so God warns us that uh, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll be religious, but they'll be lost, he'll go on to say. So we live in a day that God prophesied, and we're seeing it lived out. So, you know, Kurt Cameron came... Uh, on in an interview last week with CNN, and he was asked what he thought about homosexuality. He said, well, I think it's destructive and damaging, and he, he said it was wrong. And so, you know, people blew up over him uh, saying such a statement that, that homosexuality was wrong. You see, people don't like the concept of absolutes. And so uh, Pierce Morgan uh, said, well, what would you do if uh, your son said, I was gay. What would you do? He said, well, we'd have to sit down and have a face-to-face, heart-to-heart talk. And he said, well, I would say that, son, if that makes you happy, then it's a good thing that you're gay. I paraphrase, but that was the concept of what he said. You can read the transcript. And Kurt Cameron came back and said, well, I wouldn't say that. Why? Because he believes there's some absolutes. And... Of course, the next night he interviewed another fellow who, uh, and I read the transcript on that, who came all out against Kurt Cameron. And But he, here's the thing, and it was a point that I th- thought can't, Kurt Cameron made well. He said, listen, for you to say that homosexuality is okay, you have a morality. You, you are saying that I'm wrong for saying it's evil. And you're saying you're right for saying it is good. Well, on what basis do you say that? The morality that you have ascribed yourself to. Now, that morality that that man ascribes himself to is counter to the Word of God. The morality that our president is ascribing himself to in reference to homosexuality is countering the Word of God. 
the morality many of our politicians and now even pastors. Just uh, two weeks ago, the Presbyterian Church, United States of America, now officially declared homosexuality was okay. That is morality that's contrary to the morality found in Holy Scripture. And it's contrary to the dictates of a man's heart because a man knows by nature what is right and what's wrong. Even the reprobate of Romans 1, where he gives that long list of vile behavior, even exchanging the natural function for that which is unnatural, men abandoning the natural function of the woman and burning in their desire one towards another, men committing with men and decent acts and so forth. At the end of that long list of sins that he gives, you know, disobedient to parents, full of envy, murder, deceit, malice, etc., etc., um, he concludes by saying, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. What does that tell you? It tells you because God has written his law into the heart and conscience of man that they know deep down inside that it's evil. Uh, though they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they become they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And that's what people do when they get engaged in sin. Uh, their conscience bothers them, and uh, but not as bad uh, as they continue in their sin. And after a while, their, their conscience becomes calloused and hardened. And it can come to the point where you then become an evangelist, not for what's good, but for what's evil. So, you know, you get drunk and you want other people to go get drunk with you. That, that, that's the nature of people who are in sin. The Bible speaks of a good conscience. It speaks of a callous conscience. It also speaks of an evil conscience. And some people's conscience can come to the point where they call good evil and evil good. And that's the day that we're living in. It's a sad day. It's a day that the Bible prophesied would come. And we are living in those days. Stephanie from Beaufort, South Carolina, grew up in a household where alcohol is in moderation is okay. Of course, at the appropriate age, she writes. She says, I've recently heard your sermons on the miracle at Cana and brought that up to my family. They've come back with, well, if alcohol is bad, why did God make two glasses of red wine per day good for you? And drinking is an issue where I don't believe there is a demon in the drink. However, Satan will utilize drinking to get into your soul and warp your thinking. I think it plays out in the process of drinking to cope or to be more comfortable in a social situation. Then you feel you need to drink to be likable and so on until you're now under the control of alcohol, and now Satan has a grip on you. It's a subtle thing. Um, Stephanie was wondering what your thoughts were here as well. Well, I'm glad you heard the uh, sermon that I preached on the miracle of Cana. You know, people said there's three or four verses in the sinner's Bible. Uh, God helps those who help themselves. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Uh, Judge not, lest you be judged. And then the fourth verse is Jesus drank wine. People love to affirm that, and it gives them an excuse. And sometimes the uh, exegetical gymnastics that people use to defend drinking from John 2 is just disgraceful and nearly blasphemous. And they took it to him, the, the miracle wine that he created. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, 
And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. Now, there's two ways that you can translate the Greek of verse 10. The New American Standard in the King James renders it, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor. Uh, If you have a, a, a Bible possibly with marginal notes, it will give you an alternative reading. But the New American Standard in King James and most English translations do not include this in the body of the text because they don't think you can, and it would be logical or consistent. Uh, You could translate it, every man serves the good wine first, and when men have become drunk, then that which is poor. Well, if you translate the Greek that way, what you're basically saying is Jesus did this. He came to a wedding, the wine ran out. Now that people were so drunk and blasted, he created more wine, and um, the waiter is surprised because the waiter is saying, well, listen, you usually serve the best stuff last, and then when they're so drunk and they can't tell the difference, then you give the El Cheapo wine. I don't think for a moment that what is what the text is saying. That would be blasphemous because then exegetically what you are accusing Jesus Christ of is engaging people in sin. And that is a wicked uh, exegetical decision that someone would be making over the text. Uh, Number one, the Bible says nothing about the type of wine that he makes here. Um, It's very possible because the word oinos, and you can follow it through in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament into the New Testament, it doesn't always refer to fermented wine. Now, there are some very ignorant Christians who have said every time the word oinos appears, it's non-fermented wine. That's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He's not talking about unfermented alcohol. But there are cases, indeed, when wine, oinos, refers to, or yayin, for that matter, in Hebrew, to non-fermented wine. And there are cases in the Bible, and the context must determine. Um, I, I think every miracle that Jesus did had no taint of sin in it. W- when did wine develop? There was no fermented alcohol before the fall. Uh, fermentation is a, is a byproduct of the fall of something that is decaying and rotting, as Romans 8 describes the fall that came upon the creation. It's inconceivable to me that Jesus did a miracle that had a taint of the fall in it. I think when he created wine, he created here unfermented wine. And I think the argument would be more like this. You come over to my house, and I look into the cabinet, and I got 25 people coming, and I got uh, 10 bottles of Coke and four bottles of Chet Cola. What I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to serve my best first, the Coke. And when we run out of it, I'll pull out the Czech Cola. Or if you're coming over and uh, I've got roast beef, you know, boar's head sliced up from the deli, and I've got some El Cheapo bologna, I'm going to give you my roast beef first and let people fill up on that. And then for those chow hounds who can never get enough, then I'll, I'll pull out the bologna. Uh, and what's surprising that what the Lord did is, he, he creates perfect, beautiful, wonderful wine, even when most people are full, but he, he did it anyway. But he wasn't helping people to get drunk. Now, as to the idea that, you know, two glasses of wine a day is good for you, that's a highly, highly debated thing. In fact, that thought came out in the 1980s, and in the last decade, it's been totally countered. 
and any woman listening to me right now, they can go to virtually any website, for instance, on breast cancer. And if you want not to potentially have breast cancer, you, you want some things to be true of you. And all the breast cancer sites will say, don't smoke, don't ever use alcohol, get plenty of exercise, and eat a well-balanced diet. And if uh, those factors are not true of you, then you become a higher risk for breast cancer. Listen, I don't, I don't buy into this whole idea that we need to be drinking for our health. And I'm not saying that, that you know, there couldn't be some medical benefit from alcohol. Paul argues that there was in, in, in his letter to Timothy when he says, take a little wine for your frequent ailments. Why? Because he was probably living a John the Baptist Nazarite type of lifestyle where he was drinking water only and as a result getting sick. And so they continually would in the first century, really right up until the 19th century, mix wine in with their water because in many parts of the world, there is a high bacteria count in the water and it would make you sick. But when you added wine to it, it killed the bacteria and made it safe to drink. So um, I, I don't buy the the new, you know, young, restless and reform movement that is, for the most part, propagating the use of alcohol in the body of Christ. I think they're doing a great disservice to God's people. And it's fashionable. And they would say people like me, I'm just an ignoramus. I'm a stupid fundamentalist. Listen, I'll, I'll, I'll challenge anyone exegetically to show me differently that the strong drink, two things are very clear. In the word of God, number one, you are forbidden to be drunk. Number two, you are forbidden to use strong drink. The exception to the use of strong drink is to a dead, uh, a suffering man, uh, a suffering man who's on his deathbed as a means of, of mercy to relieve pain. Um, or strong drink mixed in with water. And when you look at the Didash, a second century AD pastoral manual, when there are times of year because they didn't have preservatives and they couldn't pull out the Welch's grape juice at the Lord's table every week, how would they prepare the Lord's supper so that they would not be guilty of God's prohibition against strong drink? The Didash tells me how. They would mix it four to five parts water to one part wine so that the people would not be guilty of participating in strong drink. So how did the early centuries understand the use of the term strong drink? Very clearly. And for someone to show otherwise, then prove it to me. Prove it to me culturally that they understood strong drink. Obviously, we're not talking about rum and whiskeys and distilled liquors that come some six centuries after the Bible was finished. Those things didn't even exist. But prove to me exegetically, culturally, historically that strong drink meant something else. And I can tell you why you can drink wine. But listen, think about it. First time you go out and you have a glass of wine, you got a buzz. Don't tell me you don't. You have a buzz. You're not worshiping God with a buzz with your whole heart, mind, and strength. And you are guilty of breaking the greatest of all the commandments that God gave. So don't drink. It's unwise. Um, anyway, let's go to the next question. All right. Uh, our next listener would like to know, actually, she writes, we know that homosexuality is bad and a sin. However, I've seen many different approaches to this in the Christian community. Are you familiar with the movie Lord, Save Us From Your Followers? Basically, it's a film where a Christian man goes around the country apologizing to the gay community for being a homosexual hating Christian. His mantra in the film is that no one came to Christ by losing an argument. So I'm wondering, where is the line between a group such as the Westboro Baptist Church 
and churches who ordain gay pastors. I obviously don't align with either of these groups, but I'm struggling to find the correct balance of showing Christ's love and rebuking the sin. Well, obviously, those who are ordained or in any way condone homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle have gone against the plain teaching of the Word of God. And, uh, of course, that's what they typically argue. They say, well, Paul was homophobic. Most of them, who are at least honest, would say, well, yes, the Bible condemns homosexuality, but the Bible's not completely true. And so your denominations in this country that deny biblical infallibility typically in a short period of time gravitate into espousing alternative lifestyles that God calls evil. What Westboro Baptist Church does is also evil. I mean, those guys are out to lunch and they're doing an awful thing and again are doing things in the name of Christianity in misrepresenting true biblical Christianity. The biblical principle is you love the sinner, but you hate the sin. And that principle is echoed through the lifestyle of Christ and through the ministry outreach of the church. If I went around and I met somebody gay, I'd say, you're just a wicked, vile, despicable, ugly, disgusting person. You think I'm going to have an opportunity to, to share Jesus Christ with them? And yet, you know, people will do that, and, and they're not consistent usually in what they do. They, they won't do that with people who are living uh, adulterous, heterosexual lifestyles, but they'll do that with gay people. God loves gay people, and we should as well. But again, he has spoken, and he has spoken clearly, and the fact that the church had a ministry to homosexuals is very, very clear. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 and verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. But the next verse tells me they had an outreach to such people. Because in the Corinthian church, he can say, And such were some of you. Some of you were effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. But what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So, again, I I don't know anything about this film or this individual, but I do know what the Bible says, that we hate sin, but we love the sinner. And churches should reach out to homosexual people. Look, at we have, we have converted homosexuals at Community Bible Church who've been one to Jesus Christ, and God in his mercy has restored the natural function. I've married some of them. Um, God can do a miraculous work. Now, some people, there's a scar. You know, all other sins you commit, 1 Corinthians says, is outside the body. But the immoral man, Paul argues in this chapter, sins against his own body. There's a scar that sometimes comes upon the human psyche when you engage in sin. So some people who are saved from a homosexual lifestyle doesn't mean that they could never be tempted that way again. Temptation is not the same as sin. Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Any more than a a, a promiscuous heterosexual when they're converted, that they could never be tempted into an adulterous or premarital sexual relationship. They could. 
The Bible says, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, for no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But a person who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God can say no to those temptations. They can present themselves as a slave to righteousness. And God, in his mercy, many times will heal that person and restore the natural function. But listen, when when you're playing around with, with sex, whenever God prohibits something, he does it for two reasons. Number one is he wants to provide the best for you. Number two, he wants to protect you. When God says, thou shall not, he, he wants to protect you and he wants to provide the best for you. You know, there's all kinds of sexually transmitted sins that they have no cure for. And even some that they've had medication for for a long time, they're coming out in just the last month about gonorrhea, how um, more and more all the antibiotics that they've used to treat people with gonorrhea aren't working. Um, Not to mention, I mean, good night, people who have to take these pills to have what God wanted them to have naturally. Uh, I mean, it's advertised all over the TV. It's disgusting. Well, why, why do you think there's such an appetite for it? I'll tell you why people cannot function the way God designed them to, because they're perverting their psyche. They're filling their minds with trash. They're feeding on porn, and they have a lifestyle of that. And what God intends for them not to do, they're doing, and they're damaging themselves, where they need some kind of pill to get aroused. Listen, that's, that's shameful. It's sad. It's sick. But it's the culture that we live in. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. Okay, actually, the next two questions are kind of tied together, so I'm going to read them both. A few Sundays ago, uh, you preached on a passage in Third John talking about how you aren't supposed to invite in people who are preaching a different gospel than the one of truth, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses. I was wondering if this only applied to people who were specifically evangelizing or if it applied to a person and their beliefs at all times. For example, if you become friends with a person who is a Mormon and you're not supposed to have them over to your house, or are you not supposed to have them over to your house ever? And what about someone who's simply lost and not saved? Then there's the whole saying that Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors. So are we not also to fellowship with sinners in order to be a witness to them? And then the other question that came in from a different person was, what happens to individuals that are very sincere, God-fearing people, yet in false doctrine and wrapped up in cults? I have some very good friends that believe terribly incorrect doctrines, such as the denial of the Trinity, yet they really love the Lord. I've done my best to witness to them, but they just don't see the error of their way. Any advice? Well, um, I, I was not preaching on Third John, but Second John, and those messages are online. And if you go back and listen to them, and I, I know I preach for an hour, and I, I speak at seven hundred words a minute with gusts of up to a thousand sometimes. And there's a lot of information that I give. And as a pastor, I'm committed to teaching God's word, and I'm committed to uh, feeding a broad range of Christians to people who've been saved a week and people who've been saved 40 years, to baby Christians and mature Christians and everything in between. But if you go back and listen to the sermon, I do address the issue in the sermon, but let me recapitulate for a moment. What I do argue in the sermon, and of course, Second John speaks not about being uh, friends, so to speak, with uh, unsaved people, whatever mix or stripe or heresy they may be engaged in, but what it's talking about is uh, participating in underwriting and supporting them in either encouragement or with physical sustenance. And so in the first century, 
you know, inns were usually brothels and they were dirty and filthy. And so most people, when they traveled, they stayed in homes. And this would certainly be true in the early church as people traveled as God's missionaries, as God's preachers, as his teachers. And and so he commends actually in third John, he says, you're, you're acting faithfully when you um, care for strangers and you send them off, he says, in a manner worthy of God. When they show up in your house, third John five and six teaches and you take care of them, you're doing a, a good thing. But he he warns about those who are false teachers in caring and supporting them. For many deceivers, he says in Second John, have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. So they're denying historic doctrine, and it's done in many different ways. This is the deceiver in, in the Antichrist. This is the spirit of Antichrist at work. Watch yourselves. You might not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a, a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, which is found, of course, in the New Testament, does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. He's talking about don't bring him in, don't feed him, don't sustain them and equip them. And certainly when they leave, don't say, God bless you, the Lord be with you, because you don't want God to bless what they are doing in what they are teaching. Paul said, if a, if a man preaches another gospel contrary to the one which you've received, even if an angel from heaven came and gave it to you, let him be a curse, let him be anathema. So God's not saying don't care for people. Just don't sustain them and underwrite them, either through encouragement, oh, it's okay, you can believe that. Um, it doesn't matter or through helping to house them and support them. Listen, if, if people habitually went to houses of Christians and said, you know, the Bible says I, I don't need to entertain this conversation with you. What you're teaching is wrong. It's false. You uh, preach another Jesus, as Paul will speak of, another Christ, and I don't espouse it. And they went to house after house after house after house after house when they met born-again Christians where they got that message. You know what happened to some of those missionaries, some of those false teachers? They'd start wondering, well, maybe, maybe I am a little mixed up here. Maybe this is something I need to explore. So um, there are certainly people who are wrapped up in cults, and they're in the cult because the cult was the first to reach them. And when they are presented with truth, then they will respond. Um, they don't love the Lord in the truest sense, if they don't espouse historical biblical doctrine. That's another Jesus. Only God can open their blinded eyes, pray for them. If the Lord leads you fast for them, love them, but don't agree with them because then you're, you're, you're doing tremendous damage. We're out of time. Hope you have a great day.